Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and the way that we will harness natural resources and meet our future energy needs. My name is Ben Moore, Marketing Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry working to accelerate the UK's wave, wind and tidal energy sectors. Today, we are in ORE Catapult's test and validation centre on the northeast coast in Blythe, just outside of Newcastle. At the time of recording, we are all set to welcome the world's biggest wind farm blade to our facility for testing, which is 107 metres in length. To put that into some kind of context, this blade would tower over Big Ben and could comfortably have 10 double-decker buses parked along its length. Today, we're going to talk about how offshore wind turbines are being supersized and some visions of the future. So joining me are Peter Greaves and Mark Forrest, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Yep, uh, I'm Peter Greaves. I'm the Senior Research Structural Engineer for Blades at ORE Catapult. And Mark Forrest, I'm the Blades Research Leader here at ORIC. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's give the listeners an idea of what offshore wind turbine uh, blades are all about, uh, what they have to face, and, and why the testing we do here at, at Catapult in particular is so critical. So, Peter, a question for you. So what do these blades have to stand up to? Uh, so there's quite well-developed standards for the design of uh, blades. You have an IEC standard that says different wind class of blades, so depending on where you're putting the turbine, if it's out at sea, you might have uh, class 1A, which means the A means it's got very turbulent wind, and the 1 means that it's the highest wind speed that's a class for. So that means the average wind speed at that point where that turbine would be installed would be 10 meters a second. But then you have to account for storm conditions that would happen every 50 years and gusts of wind, which are and of a 10 minute average of 110 meters a second. And then it will gust kind of on top of that, uh, which means, yeah, the loading on a structure that's 100 meters long and uh, five meters, you can imagine. Uh, the standards have to account for the fact that the turbine might not be able to get access to the grid. It might have lost power, so it can't point itself into the wind and pitch the blades out of the wind. So. It's basically a 100 meter long sail being blasted with uh, well over 100 meters per second or 100 miles per hour uh, winds. And yet that results in huge loads on the blade. Um, and that's all calculated using what's called aeroelastic software. So that's sector specific software, which has been developed especially for analyzing wind turbines. and that software accounts for everything that the turbine is subjected to. So not just the winds, uh, all the gravity and vibration and accelerations of the turbine being flung around by the wind, um, the loads that are imparted on the blades by the foundations moving the structure around because waves are hitting it. So it really does kind of uh, do these calculations with quite sophisticated methods now. Um, and that's how the loads are derived for turbines. So given these conditions, um, obviously the blades must sometimes be damaged. So what kind of damage might they experience? The most pressing um, 
form of damage that, that the industry is mostly concerned with is leading edge erosion. So this is a quite important in that um, the, the conditions under which the blade is operating, um, you, you have high velocity wind combined with you know rain, hail, sleet, snow, whatever it is, um, but basically you've got a ballistic impact condition um, that's accumulative. So you're getting a, a constant um, impact against the surface of the blade and there's special blade solutions to try to minimise the impact damage that um, operation will lead to. And the criticality is that um, you want to leave these blades out as long as possible. You don't want to maintain them. You want them to last um, for at least 25 year um, lifetime of, of the turbine. You don't want to touch them once they're out, particularly in an offshore um, circumstance. And the problem is once they get, have pitting, the on effect is that um, it will reduce the AEP or the um, annualised energy production that the turbine can create. So even if it's one or two percent um, diminution in the in the energy capacity or the energy produced by the blade, this these small little crevices and, and cavities that are created by um, leading edge erosion um, ruins the aerodynamics. Um, you get less energy capture, and even though it's one or two percent, you could you could start out with at, by the end of the of a year, that comes up to a lot of um, direct um, money that's basically not captured. The blades are adhesively bonded, so you have the uh, the side that's upwind and the side that's downwind are glued together at the leading and the trailing edge, and you can potentially get failure of these joints over time. Um, as the blade bends, it's a hollow structure, so uh, you kind of have the panels of the blade, the outer panels, breathe in and out, and it's sort of the, the surface pulses in and out, and that puts quite big stresses on the trailing edge bond line um, and the other bond lines in the blade. And then also you have the blades are made of uh, a foam core or a balsa wood core sandwiched between two skins of glass fibre typically and as those panels get bent by this breathing effect that will have the um, effect of trying to break the skins away from the core material the bolts wood or the, the PVC foam and yeah uh, essentially over time that failure will start to grow and cracks can, can grow and they have to be repaired in service which same as for leading edge erosion anything you do offshore is really expensive so trying to make blades that last for 25 years. Peter, do you just want to talk a little bit about um, how, how we replicate um, those conditions um, in, in facilities back here on dry land and, and what techniques that, that we at Catapult use for that? So that's static tests. And how we do those tests is we bolt the blade to a hub and that's kind of a, a big strong wall. And then we clamp wooden, uh, profiles around the blade at probably six or seven positions along its length and we hook those wooden profiles up to winches and we pull the blade um, over so just to give you an idea of sort of how flexible these blades are that hundred and uh, so meter blade would deflect at the tip under these test conditions by about 25 meters so it's really quite something to watch when you're in the control room of the test facility watching the blade bend to that degree. That's kind of static testing. 
And the other sort of test that we do is a fatigue test. So the idea of the fatigue test is to try and replicate uh, 25 years of design lifetime for the, the blade. And what we do is, again, same loads coming from the same place, the aeroelastic codes. Uh, but in this case, we calculate how much theoretical damage would happen to the blades in real life. And then using um, samples of materials that have been tested at different load levels in sort of small scale test rigs, we can extrapolate and say, okay, so if 25 years of uh, damage in service gave us uh, this, this kind of uh, level of damage on the blades, then what we need to do to do that amount of damage in three months of just flapping the blade back and forth constantly, we need to scale the loads up by a factor, and that'll typically be at least one and a half times. Okay, so you've talked about the the, the testing of the blades, um, and and now we're we're getting into I suppose what you call next generation turbines, and with those turbines, we're now seeing blades at over a hundred meters in length. From our perspective, what would be we be looking to do test wise for? the blades at over 100 meters yeah the tests for now are still the same as on a small blade the next edition of the blade testing standard is going to allow chopping the blade up into sections and not testing the whole blade so you'd just be able to test the root end of the blade and the tip end of the blade separately um, so that's something we're gearing up to start looking into doing uh, and offering as a service but for this um, sort of level of blades, the tests are still possible to do in our facility. Uh, I don't think you could really test this blade in this way anywhere else in the world because of the, the loads and the, the size of the blade. Um, but yeah, you, you do have so many extra challenges testing uh, a blade of this size. The logistics and handling, just getting it on site and mounted on the hub becomes a lot more challenging. Standard tests are, are okay for now, but definitely it's getting to the point where the blade's simply too big to test using the current methods. So why are the blades reaching um, this, this kind of size these days? What's, what's caused this kind of scale up? Right, the scaling of blades is a direct result of the physics of um, the wind and, and wanting to capture as much energy as possible because as it goes, the, um, the area which the, the blades sweep, um, the amount of, of energy you can capture scales with, with the cube of that area. So if, if you double the area, um, you're effectively capturing eight times as much um, power. So just a small increase in, in, in size will actually give you a, a very large final result in the amount of energy you can capture. And there's a direct cost um, that, that goes in, in, into that as well, um, particularly in offshore. Uh, in offshore, you've got around... Um, to actually make the turbine, you're only looking at 30% at the cost um, of a development. All the other add-on costs, the balance of system costs uh, to site the, the flo uh, floating foundations, um, cabling, or the actual logistics of, of getting them out there, all those costs um, mean that per installation, you want to actually maximise the size of the rotor. 
So there's a direct techno-economic, if you like, factor as to why we want to have, um, rather than a, a field of smaller turbines, concentrate them into larger and larger turbines so you're minimising the, if you like, balance of system cost to sustain um, that capacity of, of wind turbine. Yeah. The industry has just moved in a way um, through kind of new materials, um, better technologies for shedding off loads. So the controller of the turbine has become much more advanced and the blades will actually continuously uh, move or pitch in and out. So the blades rotate on their axis um, and that enables the turbine to shed off load. And traditionally that would be done only when the wind speed had changed sort of for 10 minutes or so. But now per during an individual revolution of the blades, the blades will be pitching and there's little things like that that you can keep doing to eke out a few um, like percentage point reductions in the loads. Uh, you can, as Mark mentioned earlier, with this move to carbon fiber. So you get a much lighter blade for uh, a stiffer material, stiffer and stronger material. But yeah, there's, there's paper designs for 20 megawatt turbines. So that's been kind of proven to be feasible, at least from a kind of desk exercise basis. Um, I know people are looking at um, over 200 meter blades. That's very desk exercise based. Yeah. I think that's but I think probably not going to happen soon, anytime uh, soon. I'd, I'd, I'd say not at all. I think at some point these costs of the rest of the turbine that Mark mentioned, like building a turbine that can support 200 yeah. meter blades would be more expensive than just putting two kind of turbines of half the capacity in, I think, at that size. The thing that drives it all where they'll stop is if the energy is continuing to get cheaper. So it may be possible to make a 200 meter blade if you make everything out of carbon fiber. And uh, yeah, you, you go to the nth degree on getting rid of weight everywhere and yeah. using aerospace style manufacturing. But if that means it costs an incredible amount to make the blade, if it costs as much, say, plane costs $200 million or so, I would say, uh, like a typical modern commercial airliner. And that is um, sort of compared to probably a factor of 10 on the cost of a wind turbine. So you have to think the energy is not going to be getting cheaper if you have to go to these lengths to to uh, make it feasible it has to be but there is doable. yeah there is there is an optimum there because yeah. at the minute a blade represents around 20 percent the cost the total cost of a turbine so you can argue that you, you could put a, a a bit more capital and or, or bomb cost into so the, the bill of materials, materials yeah. cost um, so you can um, pay for more expensive higher capability fibers um, it's just whether in in, in the wash everything is driven by a levelized cost of energy. In fact, I was looking at, uh, at a few numbers the other day, and if you look at how we've grown, it actually, the, the, the capacity and, and the size of wind turbines have basically mirrored the same growth pattern, which people tend to lord with the um, uh, microprocessor speeds. So in the, in the same time span from the start of the 80s to, to 2010, say, um, microprocessors went from um, uh, kilohertz, uh, megahertz uh, 
clock speed, sorry, up to what now gigahertz. So, so it's around uh, three orders of magnitude, three, three to four orders of magnitude. So between a thousand times and 10,000 times their speed from the 80s is what you can, you know, you'd be getting at around the 2010s. And the same thing has happened with capacity with uh, wind turbines, where we started with low kilowatt machines at the start of the 80s to now multi-megawatt. So again, three to four orders of magnitude difference. So mm. yeah, as Peter said, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say this is... And the goalposts move as well. One of the things is how expensive carbon fibre is at the moment. So you, Correct. you won't yeah. make a blade necessarily cheaper by using lots of carbon fibre, but if someone has a breakthrough on making cheap carbon fibre, which yeah, isn't beyond the realms of possibility, then that could suddenly see an explosion in the size and add another 20 metres very quickly, I think. So, yeah, it's uh, wait and see is the answer to that one, I think. So we've talked about, obviously, supersizing offshore wind, and, and obviously there's, there's, there's a, a vast amount of, of wind resource and, and, and energy yield potential further offshore. So what about moving wind farms further out? Um, that surely creates a huge logistical challenge in terms of, sort of things like cabling, um, you know, transporting people out there, the foundations, of course. Um, can we really keep moving further and further out to shore, Mark? Uh, we can. There is a lot of hope in the industry, um, particularly regarding differences in, in, in how a particular turbine is, is tethered. Um, so the foundation plays a critical role. So there's a lot of hope being placed on, on floating wind, which you need to when you get further and further out and you have um, deeper and deeper water to, to contend with, floating wind is, is almost the only way to go. Um, but you actually get access to, to cleaner winds. Um, then it becomes, how do you get all that energy back? And, then, and that's the, one of the, as I mentioned before, the balance of system costs is in those, those indirect auxiliary but necessary functions of, of cabling, for instance. So then you're looking at concepts of, right, if you've got a conductor, do you, um, are you a DC realm or are you AC? Um, or why don't we try something else like, like hydrogen, for instance? Um, or the floating wind, because ironically, in renewables and, and wind particularly, um, it's almost ironic that we're, we're piggybacking on the technology of, of oil and gas um, because of the expertise in, in floating and working in offshore environments and um, the marine engineering that goes on to, to these large oil rigs uh, are being effectively directly ported into the, the renewable sector, which is quite ironic and quite great. Um, but we have to look at other uh, concepts, uh, potentially using hydrogen. So that's a concept where you generate hydrogen um, directly at the turbine through electrolysis and use well-known, you know, pumping of um, gases in, in pipelines is, is a well-understood, very mature technology. There are slight differences with, with hydrogen because it tends to imprint all metallic surfaces, um, but they're not problems that are inherently not, you can't overcome. So there are concepts like that that are used and are being costed. It just depends how much of that can be done in a in a relatively short time frame to sort of reach a lot of the carbon mitigations that we've all set ourselves. You think, well, can we develop instead of floating wind, for instance, for the same um, 
investment could we do it nearer to shore um, and just concentrate on the existing fleet and, and putting money into that I think there should be a bit of both personally but um, those are the kind of challenges that those secondary ones yeah in the UK we're really lucky with uh, both the wind resource and the kind of water depths around in our waters but there's all sorts of swathes of the earth where the continental shelf drops off really quickly and floating just becomes the only option. So Japan is kind of trying to move away from nuclear and they have gone very heavily into Indeed. looking at yeah. offshore, uh, sorry, at floating wind. Mm. Um, and yeah, floating wind starts to make completely different designs of wind turbine look more sensible. So you might want to look at revisit sort of designs of wind turbine that have been passed over because we've developed these sort of three-bladed upwind turbines for onshore, maybe for floating offshore, you start to look at vertical axis wind turbines or uh, downwind wind turbines, these kinds of things may start to be revisited. Mark and Peter, thank you for taking part in today's Re-Energize podcast. It's time to de-energize until the next time. Listeners can find more news on renewable energy and the 107 meter blade arrival at ore.catapult.org.uk and on Twitter at orecatapult.